I think the Army does two things really, really well. I think we adapt, and I think we innovate. I think both of those have been on display given the things that we've been able to keep going. We got a workforce that's used to being on Cipernet. They don't have hardwired Cipernet at their house. How are we gonna get them Cipernet? I believe in the future, the words telework will be a thing of the past. I think it'll just be work. And I don't think people will care because of this acceptance of the virtual space and this comfort that's developed over time with it. We won't be calling it telework anymore because it'll, it'll just be work. Federal IT's ability to sustain delivery of vital services to citizens stands out as one of the brightest aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Meritalk is chronicling the untold stories of that heavy lift and the lessons it holds for the future as the nation embarks on the journey toward a more certain future. Welcome to the Meritalk podcast series, CIO Crossroads, Federal IT in the COVID Crisis. Today, we look at the U.S. Army's IT evolution four months into the fight. This episode is brought to you by Cloudera and ServiceNow. In the U.S. Army and the other military service branches, one thing matters above all others, protecting our people and executing on the mission. In the spirit of forewarned is forearmed, Army leadership began to take action in February to adapt operations for the pandemic gathering force beyond the horizon. As part of the Defense Department's Telework Readiness Task Force that enabled more than 900,000 remote work user accounts by mid-April, the Army adapted and innovated at speed. The number of soldiers using Commercial Virtual Remote, or CVR, Microsoft Teams, went from zero to the current state of 348,000, while the Pentagon itself jumped from 5% telework to 90% telework in less than a month. In an exclusive interview with Meritalk, outgoing Army CIO Lieutenant General Bruce Crawford says the quick pivot to a more virtual footing reflects two things that the service branch does very well, adapt and innovate. After just a few months, Army personnel have successfully worked the new tech into their battle rhythm and aren't looking back. Can you tell us about your largest priorities and greatest success during the COVID-19 pandemic? What are you most proud of? When the Army is called upon, you want us to be ready. And so readiness continues to be at the forefront. So when they set those four priorities for us back in January, uh, protect the force, maintain readiness, support the whole of nation effort, while continuing uh, to preserve uh, the capability to build the future army, that was pretty powerful in setting conditions for us to be where we are right now, which is up and running, army strong, just like you want us to be. Uh, I think the army does two things really, really well. Uh, you know, again, really, really big, third largest organization of any kind in the world, United States Army. But there's two things that we do well. I think we adapt and I think we innovate. I think both of those have been on display given the things that we've been able to keep going. So I'd say things I'm most proud of, how quickly the Army adapted and innovated. Okay. Where do you see challenges? Challenges. The greatest challenge, if I had to pick one, because there's actually several has to do with cybersecurity, to be quite honest with you. If you think about what we did, almost overnight, 
as a part of Dana DC's CIO COVID IT task force. We went from defending the perimeter, and these are traditional perimeters, your post camps and stations. Okay, the Army has 288 post camps and stations around the world. We went from defending those, defending the Pentagon, et cetera, and that was your defensive perimeter, to literally defending the living room. Uh, just inside the Pentagon alone, we went from, you know, where you probably at any given time, you may have had 5% of the people teleworking, maybe, but I think it was even less than that, to within about 30 days, we had about 90% of the Pentagon teleworking, which was really interesting to watch that evolution occur because it took education. I think another challenge, if I had to pick one, would have been culture. So CVR Microsoft Teams, I would argue right now that, and I'm not sure if Microsoft actually knows this, but I suspect they do, with the Army having well over 300,000 active Microsoft Teams users and 1.2 million accounts provisioned, I would argue we're probably one of the world's uh, largest consumers of that particular platform, if you just looked at one organization. But as you well know, sometimes you show, uh, you can show people and you can talk about collaboration tools and how important they are, but it's not a part of their life. You know, it's not a part of their DNA. It's not something they do every day. So it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I, when I, when I need that, I'll use that tool. Yeah. When I say culture, it's, it was getting the workforce back to the adapting piece to accept these tools. And it wasn't, uh, I don't, when I say it was a challenge, probably challenge is not, maybe not the right term for it, but it was something we had to overcome and we had to do it quickly. And so because they were, I won't call it isolated, but somewhat, they saw value in the tool immediately. And all of a sudden overnight, they were doing things with it that we never, ever dreamed that they would be doing with it, with the actual tool. And it's not just, okay, town halls and people want to do that kind of thing. Oh, there are a lot of tools that you can do that with. Here's an example. Um, I'm not saying he did this, but he's a young captain out there. You know, he's the lower end of the totem pole here, but he's in a really important job. He's got about 300 soldiers, but they run meetings. They have maintenance meetings and training meetings during the week. And as I was explaining it to him, I said, listen, you realize that because of the voice, video, and collaboration capability, the ability to share documents and edit literally in real time, when you start teleworking, you could pull in your weekly meeting and you could have that meeting literally on CVR Microsoft Teams. And so across the Army, young people had been uh, leveraging the tool in ways that we never thought of before. And I, I know I gave you a long answer there. I, I think it was both an opportunity and a challenge when you assess the culture piece of this and how quickly the workforce was able to adapt and then quickly innovate. And now I can't get it away from them. I get one question every day. Since we rolled it out, I'd say the last month and a half, every day I get the same question. Sir, how long are we going to be able to keep Microsoft Teams? we got to let you know we can't go back. It's a part of our daily battle rhythm now. What's next? Are you feeling entrenched in this new normal? What does it look like? The whole new normal topic is fascinating to me. When I think new normal, I think about what happened on 9-11 because I I was in the Pentagon on 9-11. And I remembered overnight how new ways of doing business just started happening and people just had to adjust. And look, people accepted 
this is the way we're going to do business for the foreseeable future. It's not going to change. You know, you're going to be taking off your shoes and all kinds of different things are going to happen. When I think about the term new normal, I think about that. I think this is different. I think of this more in the context, the environment we're dealing with now, more in the context of a new now. And my thesis, and I could be wrong, but my thesis is, so instead of it being that here are the new behaviors and we're going to, it's going to be like this for the foreseeable future, you could argue that just as the last 90 days have been fundamentally different than the next 90 days, the 90 days after that are going to be fundamentally different and so on and so forth. And so where I think it's going to land on the whole idea of, of new normal is it's going to come down to probably one of two questions. And back to behaviors. Will it be, and we'll figure this out over time, that we're just going to take the old things that we used to do and we're just going to do those same things differently in the future? Or will new things actually emerge where it's not just going to be pull the old things forward and do them differently, there will be new things, new ways of doing business, new behaviors that emerge. But I think it's going to be a combination of both. Uh, Virtual training. Of course, the Army, as I mentioned, is really, really big. And one of the things that the four-star general, uh, General Paul Funk, wants to do is he saw this as an opportunity when we started to go to teleworking and COVID hit because he wanted to get away from just brick-and-mortar training. So pre-COVID, his question was, how do I get to virtual training? You know, maybe not all. There's no substitute for the human interaction. But how do I get to virtual training? And the answer was, oh, sir, the network will never be able to handle that. Yet we're doing it, right? We're doing it at over 5,000 classrooms, eight different centers of excellence. There are 14 different locations and 33 different schools, you know, Examples are aviators in Fort Rucker, Alabama, Intel at Fort Huachuca, Arizona, Cyber and Signal at uh, Fort Gordon, Georgia. That's just a a thought on the whole new normal. My thesis is it's more going to be about the new now because there are just too many variables in the equation. And I say it'll maybe it'll settle in the next six to eight months. But for the foreseeable future, it's likely to be more of a new now than a new normal. How have your days changed since the start of the pandemic? I'm seeing an acceptance of the virtual space has driven us to do, this is what I'm doing most of the day. To the point to where, um, so it's very clear to you probably that I'm in the Pentagon, but I won't likely attend one in-person meeting today. Although the place that we used to meet is 100 yards down the hall, not even 100 yards down the hall. Um, Every senior leader and principal official will be likely in their office and they will be virtually into a room and uh, communicating. And it's exactly as we probably would have done it six months ago, you know, in person. So that's probably been the, the, the major change is actually getting used to that. One closing data point for you on this subject is I believe in the future, the words telework will be a thing of the past. I think it'll just be work, all right? And I don't think people will care because of this acceptance of the virtual space and this comfort that's developed over time with it. We won't be calling it telework anymore because it'll, it'll just be work. What are the lessons learned since the pandemic began? And knowing what you know today, what advice would you give yourself three months ago? Wow, that's really a good question. 
I think strategic flexibility in network design has been a big lesson learned because of what I said about the new now and versus the new normal. I think we tend to design based on what we think is more likely to happen by assessing multiple courses of action and directions we could go. I'd say the number one piece of advice that I would have given myself three months ago would have to be, look, Crawford, you all need to make sure that you're preserving decision space for the Army senior leadership, depending on which direction things could go. And you have built in operational and strategic flexibility that doesn't tie them to one particular course of action. What has the Army done to ensure service members and employees practice strong cyber hygiene while working from home? Can you provide any other cybersecurity data points? I talked about the task force, you know, good on Dana DC for pulling this together very early on. As a matter of fact, I went by two days ago and I looked at some of our first charts that we created. And then I look at what we're producing now. It's really interesting how what we were talking about day one and what we're talking about now and how this has actually evolved. So one of the big outcomes of the, co- of the task force and one of our early concerns was what I talked about as people started to telework. And we had no idea how fast and how far this was going to go. It's going to be a 90-day thing. It's going to be a six-month thing. Are we going to be in this for the long haul? Nobody really knew. And so how do we educate the workforce quickly? And so think about um, in the room, there's the service CIOs, you know, Aaron Weiss, myself, Bill Marion. There's Dana DC and his team, Pete Ranks from a cloud perspective. Uh, but then there's also CyberCom and NSA, all right, in the room. And so we collectively pooled ideas, fueled with data, real data on, on threats that we could turn into unclassified tasks for the workforce. And we produced this uh, document called Cyber Do's and Don'ts. And it was uh, in plain English, because when I look, again, when I look at the first iteration, it was like, ah, way too technical. Um, because we're talking, this is a logistician we're going to hand this to. You know, he, he's not an IT guy. He's one of the, part of the workforce here. And so we produced Cyber Do's and Don'ts, but it was threat informed. All right. And it was virtual, so we could update it over time. And we gave that to the workforce and talk to them about it. So uh, most of my time was actually spent educating the workforce. From a cybersecurity perspective, it was all about a couple things. It was about educating the workforce with the cyber do's and don'ts document that I thought was uh, well-received. It was about examining zero trust attributes and does the COVID environment allow us to accelerate big ideas that we're already working? We're not there, obviously, with zero trust, a lot of work to do, but we, it did give us an opportunity to assess the, some of the key attributes of the zero trust environment and start to implement some of those in a rolling fashion. What are some of the tools required for telework in your mission space? So tools and mobility, all right? We got a workforce that's used to being on Cipernet. They don't have hardwired Cipernet at their house. How are we going to get them Cipernet? And then there was the mobility and making sure that we leverage commercial solutions for classified technologies to get super mobility tools into our workforce. And the Army actually rolled out about, with DISA's help, about 800, seven to 800 super mobile devices uh, in a span of uh, about two months. Do you think the pandemic will push forward the Comply to Connect framework? So a lot 
of the new now environment where you've got a dramatically expanded cyber attack surface is because we don't have com comply to connect yet. And oh, by the way, that's another thing that we're looking to try and accelerate. Because we don't have comply to connect where we have this automated, fully automated mechanism that's going to assess your tool, your endpoint. Uh, it's going to be able to know if you're up to date or not. It's going to place you in the clean room. It's going to clean you and then it's going to put you back on the network type capability. I think it's going to allow us to accelerate the completed connect, which is a critical component of the zero trust environment. Uh, back to the unknowns. Are we going to be in this environment for the next 90 days? Are we, is it six months? Is it six years? And so uh, obviously when you expand the attack surface, uh, you become a little bit more vulnerable. You have the potential to be. I'm not saying we are, but because you've got to defend more, it's, you know, laws of physics come into play. All right. And so how do you do that? And how do you posture yourself to do that? So uh, comply to connect and zero trust, I'll call them attributes, become a lot more important to us. Hence, we got to, you know, accelerate. Can you share any additional metrics on different types of network traffic, number of attacks and things of that sort? So metrics, how, how do you know that you're measuring the right things? So I'll look at the medical community because, you know, on point for this entire operation, oh, we, we've got a surge, we got to build hospitals, and now we got to staff the hospitals. Um, the medical community right now, about 50% of their patient engagements are all virtual, right? Leveraging the enterprise network. It was fascinating to watch that evolve over time because I was thinking, wondering how accepting are the patients going to be to virtual? What Steve Fogarty and Maria Barrett out at Netcom did in their Operate and Defend mission is they were able to, in less than a month, expand capacity around the globe by 400% in, in about a, a month and a half. So is it a metric that in the span of a couple of months, the Army's going from zero CDR Microsoft Teams users to over 300,000, averaging about 1,500 per day projects us to eclipse 400,000 over the next month. And this is active guard and reserve. I think this has been an, an, an overwhelming uh, uh, success story. And then I talked about the virtual training and I started down that road. Wow. Um, what West Point is doing, how they've been able to train just using CDR as they're getting ready to go over in the recess. Because of stop move, you know, because people can't move around like they were before, they've been to leverage Microsoft Teams to train over the last couple of months over 300 instructors and get them ready for summer as we start to roll into the fall, right? And, and we've got countless examples where virtual training has become the norm now, and there is no going back. Who would you like to give shout outs to? Any team members or other folks across the government? I think Dana deserves a shout out uh, for having the foresight to, although, you know, when we initially pulled ourselves together, who knew where, where this would end, where we would go, um, but having the foresight to pull the team together and start to bang away at this problem set because the outcomes that have been delivered have been good for the joint force. Not just good for the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard. Oh, by the way, the National Guard Bureau was in that forum, Cybercom, NSA. I think it, it gave us unprecedented visibility, the ability to see ourselves corporately that it probably would have taken us years to get just because of the amount of time that we were literally virtually 
um, spending together because this was, you know, all done, done, done virtually. It started out the first couple of weeks where we were kind of going to a meeting and then uh, social distancing became a thing. And all of a sudden everything was virtual and everybody was comfortable with it. But that unprecedented visibility, I think is going to have second and third order effects downstream. So, so a shout out to Dana. A shout out to Steve Fogarty, uh, Lieutenant General Type, and Maria Barrett and their team out in their Operate and Defend mission. As you well know, all of this is for naught uh, if there are compromises on a, on a grand scale that we did not anticipate. So it's not just what they're doing, but it's their ability to anticipate the strategic impact of change that's made the difference. Big shout out to them. And there are many, many others that I could thank. But I would just start there. And if, if you would just allow me one other thing, uh, one other point to make. If you go back and read some of the headlines from January, Army stops uh, rotation to the National Training Center. Army stops or slows this and that. That wasn't very popular back then because COVID wasn't really a thing here. Our leadership had um, the professional courage, the foresight, to see, be able to look two ridge lines over and see that, listen, um, I'm not saying we're going to stop doing business, but we do need to start to modify behaviors and we do need to educate the Army on what we see coming. And so what that allowed us to do, and I talked about the two things the Army does well, adapt and innovate, it allowed us to do that at speed, in stride, instead of we really do have to stop. So things like recruiting, we still had to recruit. Rolling out Microsoft Teams and watching how recruiters quickly adapted to it uh, to keep recruiting growing. I think the foresight, and a shout out to the Army leadership, and that would be General McConville, uh, and it would be Secretary of the Army Ryan McCarthy, the Vice Chief, and, and the Honorable uh, uh, Jim McPherson. Th those, those folks had some foresight, and they saw this coming, and it allowed the Army to continue to move, right? It allowed recruiting to continue to happen and training to continue to happen. And and rotations uh, to continue to happen so that we could do what the nation pays us to do, and that's to be ready, right, uh, in the event of a crisis. That's what you want us to do. When the Army is called upon, you want us to be ready. That's a really important, I would say, leadership uh, factoid that back to someone's going to write about this one day. And I think at the critical point, they made the right decision when it wasn't the most popular decision. Today, we've been talking with U.S. Army CIO, Lieutenant General Bruce Crawford. Lieutenant General Crawford, we want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Absolutely, and thanks for what you're doing. And thank you, listeners, for joining Meritalk's podcast series, CIO Crossroads, Federal IT in the COVID Crisis. We hope you'll continue to join us as we take a look at Federal IT's reaction to the crisis, the challenges faced along the way, and ultimately, the success stories that have kept America rolling. This episode was brought to you by Cloudera and ServiceNow.